All right, coming to you live, high above <laughs> Congress Street. It's the System Failure Podcast number 15. Hey, Brian, how's it going for you this week? Oh, pretty good. I can't believe we're up to number 15. Uh, I That's know. I mean, what do you think the number is before we get to be where we're really good at this? What's the, what is it, like 50 maybe? Uh, well, I think it's safe to say, like, you know, well, this is podcast 15, and um, so it's like we're still in our adolescence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure we'll start to mature, you know, in our mid-20s or, you know, knowing the history of NOPS, yeah, maybe in our 30s or 40s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we shouldn't uh, put too much pressure on ourselves. I feel like 50 podcasts in, you would really start to gain a little bit of um, fluidity and rapport, and hopefully it, you, you, you will be able to speak without thinking about the fact that we're speaking into a microphone. It'll come naturally so i don't know i feel definitely a lot better on at number 15 than i did at number one that's for sure it was tough to get used to at first well uh yeah we're uh we're making progress um yeah so uh, let's see what's going on here well uh thanksgiving is coming up but yeah well you've been like uh you know not in the office eh? yeah well my one uh working as a consultant for robert half i i have been off for a couple of weeks because um, my one uh, project ended, and uh, so another one begins the Monday here after Thanksgiving. That one will be convenient because uh, it'll be a work from home position, so I won't have to go into any office. So that's pretty sweet. Um, I ordered a desk that's exactly like the one you have here, um, with a slightly different color top. Um, so, and I've got uh, the ch- the Capisco chairs from the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, which are a little bit like saddles. They don't, they're not, they're unusual chairs. Um, that's going to be delivered on Monday, um, and so you'll have to come over and check that out. Um, whenever you get a chance. Well, you'll really be able to, you know, research uh, the people's uprising uh, <laughs> in yeah. style. Well, I, yeah, it really, it's a major limiting reagent to borrow a parlance out of chemistry that um, the chairs and the desks are always at the worst heights. And so I do a lot of writing in public libraries um, or in the common area here in our apartment tower. And um, the posture, the ergonomics are absolutely brutal. And so I've suffered terribly, and I'm hopeful that I'll be able to focus for longer without the back starting to ache. And uh, listeners of this podcast won't know, Brian, but you and I are both six foot four in stature, and so that presents all manner of posture-related issues um, when it comes to spending long amounts of t- uh, long long amounts of time peering into various computer monitors. Uh, being tall is both a blessing and a curse. Mm. Uh yeah. Uh, especially as you get older but yeah being uh you get like a wretched hump in your back and uh that's aching for days <laughs> yeah yeah we're clearly we're not as the species of we're not meant to spend hours and hours peering into these crazy computer monitors um like with your eyes locked in a single position um so i don't know i think maybe uh once i in the future maybe i'll um look for a job you know it, that doesn't involve computers there's got to be some way to make a living that doesn't involve just sitting and peering um, and but also like some of the trades are notoriously really hard on your body, like construction and things like that. Um, there's just there's got to be a way to earn a living that doesn't come at horrible cost, or, or maybe that's the reality. We're all just selling our health a little parcel at a time each day. Well, I think if you could get a job spear throwing, that would be ideal. Spear throwing, yeah, chasing uh, chasing game on the savannas, that'd be nice. Well, <laughs> um, you know, well maybe the the podcast will work. Yeah, yeah, that will that will be uh, yeah that would be sweet. Although that's going to involve a lot of um, that's going to definitely involve computers. It's the way of the future. Well, um, well, what else is going on? Well, uh, we mean we went to LFK with the captain on Friday. Yeah, yeah. Oof. 
man, I don't know. It was it was fun at the time, but uh, the suffering was replete the next day. I mean, really, I feel like for me, I had to close the book on booze and alcohol you know, virtually. I just maybe want to become like the you know, like one drink. Like if you can enjoy like a like a nice blood red goblet of uh, Pinotage in South Africa. Um, before your steak, why that's a fan, you know, the, the, a little bit of booze will set the palate down, like the conductor tapping his baton on the lectern to warm up the orchestra that I can get behind. But man, I just, there's just nothing at the end of that. There's nothing at the end of that journey. And, uh, you know, journey is something we can talk about a little bit at the end of this podcast. Well, when you're having a transient hangover, I guess you do get the opportunity to reevaluate your life's decisions and uh, think about what you're doing going forwards. So I guess there is that upside. (laughs) Well, it was a capital evening, and I have to say that in the long run of things... I haven't. Some people can't seem to put the drink down once they start, and they just end up in a spiral where you know, they get to where they don't even feel normal without the booze. But that hasn't been me. Um, I have been. I'm able to put it down, no problem. And so I, in the final reckoning, I do feel like I have a lot of really positive memories with a lot of great people uh, that revolve around alcohol. And, um, and well, I really can't recreate. You know, I have to let those things be fond, rosy memories in the past. Um, and the final analysis, it really has been, it's been great. It's been a great journey, but I think that, um, Friday night definitely, um, definitely swung my, it definitely colored my perception that it's time to close the gate on that garden and move on to hopefully another better garden. Well, my feeling certainly is, yeah, that I'm never drinking again after, (laughs) uh, Friday night, but, uh, it is interesting, or just in comparison to smoking the weed, like, suppose, you know, uh, well, if we just went on a crazy weed bender, I don't know, like, I would be thinking about smoking the weed again, and at least one thing about alcohol is I, I want nothing to do with it. Yeah, well, you're right. It's not the same um, positive feedback loop. It's not the same self-reinforcing behavior, so you're right. Um, I guess that's I guess that's one thing we can be grateful for, eh? Yeah. All right, well... Uh, well, what else do we want to get into? Should we continue our saga of talking about the goings-ons in you know, the Middle East? Yeah, I think you had an interesting point to bring up, one that I wasn't aware of. Uh, what is that? Well, just, you know, Mike Baker was on Joe Rogan's podcast. <clears throat> and, you know, Mike Baker is uh, you know, allegedly used to be working for the CIA. I mean, it sounds like he's still working for the CIA. Uh, he's often on there putting like a, I don't know, like a pro-America spin on things. But anyway, just one factoid, though, that he brought up was that the Palestinians or Hamas only has like 30 percent support of the Palestinians. Um, I Googled it and I think what I found is it's about 34 percent. And so uh, it was just hard not to think of the situation here in America. Uh, We, you know, we have these Republicans or Democrats are in charge uh, but, you know, like about 35% of the population, I think, turns up to vote in a regular election. Mm, yeah, and I, no, no one actually likes these Democrats or Republicans. Um, except that in this situation, well, people like ask who the oppressors are. Like, well, Jordan Peterson was also on Bill Maher. Yes, talk, yes I saw. Yeah, he was like, well, who are the uh, oppressors here? Well, it, it's not the Palestinians who like don't even support this crazy, you know, terrorist network that's in charge and they're getting like blown up uh, by the thousands 
uh man that's just it's just a shocking statistic i think yeah that is surprising you wouldn't that's not the uh, daylight between hamas and the palestinians i mean even though hamas is only in gaza not on the west bank reportedly uh there there's just not a lot those are like just conflated and there's not a lot of mm, uh, distinction in that and to your point i feel like that is a distinction well worth making your figure of 30 something percent makes me think of i I think the latest polls have 78 percent medicare for all Seventy-eight uh, percent support for Medicare for all across both parties. Um, so I, if it's seventy-eight percent, then there's twenty-two percent of us that are like against Medicare for all, and it's it's like an almost similar number, you know, twenty-two percent, thirty percent. We and what what it makes me think of is that we've got these, we've got the vast majority of Americans are just held hostage by this two-party um, intrigue. Where it's like Noam Chomsky said, you just uh, you uh, allow incandescent debate, but within a very narrow range of opinion, and that is, and then we everyone gets distracted by that sideshow, and the people who make millions and millions of dollars off of having the insurance companies as middlemen and um, collecting fifty cents of every every one of our health care dollars, um, but not providing surgeries, not handing out prescriptions for medication, but just shuffling paperwork, and somehow they end up with half the loot. Um, it's really it's uh, it it make it it does seem like um, it uh, it is like you have to distinguish between people's political representatives and then the people themselves um, and the decisions are being made by political representatives but the bombing and the murder and mayhem and death and destruction is happening on the you know uh, on the people um, so that's a, so I I kind of just thought of the Palestinian cause at least uh at least in Gaza and. Um, and Hamas is one of the same, but it is it is interesting. There's a little more resolution there um, because of what you're saying. Yeah, well, I mean, they say that if Hamas was in control, you know, they would wipe out all the Jews, which, you know, it's in their charter, charter so I guess you could believe them. Um, if the, you know, Jews were in control, well, they would maintain an open-air prison for the Palestinians because that's what's been mm, going yeah. on here to four. It just makes me wonder, like, if the Palestinians were in control, though, as opposed to, like, Hamas, similar to what you're saying about Medicare, like, if, if people were in control in the United States, then obviously we had universal health care. But if, like, the Palestinians were in control, would they be eliminating the Jews? Uh, just you, know, like, you just got to wonder, like, how, how bad is the situation? The impression I get, you know, from looking at random videos online is that there's, like, a lot of hate for each other but uh with a 34 percent statistic maybe it's not as bad as it seems well the other world news today uh the other world news this week is that um the osama bin laden's letter about 9-11 went viral on tiktok and so the observer i think it was the observer website removed it so that people couldn't look at it anymore <laughs> i think it's the guardian the guardian okay the guardian removed it so that people couldn't look at it anymore and you're like well okay it's not that we it's not that we want to condone bin Laden or the blowing up of civilians here stateside or anywhere else. Um, but the idea that we, that bin Laden in in Al Qaeda and the, and the folks in the middle East who hate America, hate us because of our freedoms, which was, was the, that was the party line for a decade in the Bush regime. Like the idea that they hate us for our freedoms is not really what they're telling themselves, right? They, they have some, they have a very concrete list of political grievances and that's why I turned off the Mike Baker, Joe Rogan. I just, I want to like, um, yell, I just want to yell, would somebody acknowledge the land grab? Like, it's not that it, I really like it. Maybe that there's some, um, some amount of Jew hatred or anti-Semitism. Um, we've talked about the financial roots of a lot of that previously on this podcast. 
Um, but if the, but the idea that the land grab doesn't factor in at all or can just be overlooked doesn't really seem like an honest assessment of the situation. That's what I wonder about with Mr. Mike Baker and his CIA credentials, his his intelligence bona fides. I'm like, dude, how can how how can we really trust? Can we really trust his his analysis? Um, and of course, we had um, JBP, as you mentioned, on Bill Maher talking about how. Um, people identify the Palestinians as the oppressed and the Jews as the oppressors as if like we have completely um, projected that onto the situation seems like what I mean it's like there has been a land grab in living memory now I mean I understand that there's ancient history and medieval history um, and Ottoman history but like there has been a land grab in living memory and I just can't take anyone seriously who doesn't want to factor that into the equation i mean i'm down to factor some anti-semitism in um crazy as that sounds to me but uh but but um we got to be down to factor the land grab in too just in the way that we're never going to understand al-qaeda and the true motivations behind 9-11 if we just go around assuming that they hate us for our freedoms and that's why they're lashing out and has nothing to do with our ridiculous military intervention and misadventures in their territory um so anyway that was how what i thought on the several media um, uh, appointments that you just mentioned yeah well it seems like some classic whataboutism or it just goes back to what i was saying well it just seems like the defense for israel is that well you know if the uh, arabs were in control they would eliminate all the jews so mm. we're just going to be okay with the status quo I, I guess is the logic yeah well yeah well that's where the distinction between hamas and the palestinian people has to come in and i mean uh, there's just going to be some you're just when you like um when you do land grabs or you intervene in people's politics um you're going to generate some hatred i just think that uh oh man pat buchanan i think that um dave smith has been go- crowing pat buchanan's old line about how the price of imperialism is terrorism, and if you do not wish to pay the price of terrorism, you must cease and desist with the imp- empire. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I've never, not been known to agree with old Pat Buchanan ever, but I do like that quote. It does seem like, yeah, you're going to occupy people and systematically strip them of their natural resources and their sovereignty. You're going to have to live with some blowback. And um, it's interesting the mythology we kind of tell ourselves here at the heart of empire to. Un- to, to grapple with that with that blowback because it's hard for us to understand it well i just it also just makes me wonder you know just a couple podcasts ago i was talking about that op-ed from the times of israel where uh you know they were suggesting that you know netanyahu wants to keep hamas because it'll prevent like a legitimate two-state solution and carry on the status quo i mean it seems uh it seems like there's a strong energy just to, you know, push the Palestinians into the sea, which is certainly not a uh, different than keeping Hamas around. Although, I mean, what are the chances they can actually accomplish that goal? But it, I don't, I guess, uh, like just here in America, uh, we have like, you know, uh, well, I mean, African Americans feel underrepresented and like they're getting the shaft at every opportunity while the Republicans and Democrats continue to be in control. And so, uh, I mean, is it is it the same situation in Israel where, like, Hamas and Israel benefit from each other being in power? Uh, I think on the Mike Baker podcast, yeah, they were just talking about how all this, like, the, the leaders of Hamas are, like, billionaires because, like, all the aid, like, has to come through them. And they're basically, like, gangsters. Um, and so, like, the status quo is extremely beneficial uh, to them. And then, well, if the times of... Israel op-ed is to be believed, then the status quo is also beneficial for, you know, the Netanyahu as well. 
So it seems like a shocking situation where the powerful people at the top are gaining and, you know, everyone else is getting the shaft. (laughs) What a surprise. Yeah, I know. Uh, Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's what I have to say about the Middle East this Mm. week. (laughs) Well, on the slightly related note, they had Ted Cruz on that same Bill Maher from two weeks back, um, uh, banging on about his new book about the horrors of cultural Marxism. And that's a common JBP trope as well. And I had I, I thought about it a half dozen times during that Bill, particular Bill Maher episode that like uh, it, it I don't know what I don't understand this cultural Marxism business I don't think that's anywhere in the writings of Karl Marx himself um, he did analyze economic power and uh, analyze economics in terms of power and power you know usually has an oppressor and oppressed um, but I do think that like it's like people don't have any idea what Karl Marx really had to say in his books no one bothers to crack them and. Uh, telling people that like the cultural Marxism, the, 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 the excesses of woke is somehow related to the economic ideas of Herr Marx. It's just like, I do agree with that. You have, I agree with JBP to a certain extent and in, in the sense that people are projecting the roles of oppressor and oppressed everywhere and sometimes inappropriately. And we can argue about where those roles are, appropriately applied and not but there's no question that a whole generation of people under 40 in this country are waking up to the fact that they're not going to be owning a home for example and there's no everyone is aware that the medic the medical system's a scam even though we have um, overwhelming majority in favor of a medicare for all solution um so i i it is definitely true that there is some kind of like there's like some kind of fuckery afoot and uh, it's maybe people can't identify the bars of the cage that they're trapped in very well, or they're having trouble doing that. But when you're not going to be owning a home or having a retirement or, or you know, be able to afford children or all of these things that people expected uh, that previous generations took for granted, like it's no wonder that people are go- it's no wonder the young kids are like labeling oppressor and oppressed, even if it's in a confused and ham fisted fashion. Uh, it's just no wonder people are drawn to the works of, uh, uh, of Karl Marx and I and I, I do feel like the opponents of Karl Marx want to point to the uh, like I say the worst excesses of the woke movement or whatever whatever the most ridiculous examples are and try to invalidate all the entire Marxist critique based on that and I don't think it's it's just not going to get any traction it's never going to go anywhere people are waking up to the fact that something's wrong this America is the most wealthiest country in all of history um, but we have a crazy wealth distribution that you'd have to go back to Pharaonic Egypt, you know, or maybe Rome in its, uh, you know, in its early imperial or late imperial period, or you, the Gilded Age here in America <laughs> back in the 19th century. Um, there, we we tried solving this problem with reform in the form of the New Deal, and so is it going to have to be a revolution? I mean, it's really it's it's like the old JFK quote: "Those who make." peaceful reform impossible make violent revolution inevitable i don't exactly remember the quote but it goes something like that so well it's a clever obfuscation i think uh because well i mean as you said on the podcast before i mean marx was excited about capitalism because it brought an end to the you know the monarchs and then it brought about this new system that was inevitably going to collapse under its own weight and then, you know, bring about the people's revolution, hopefully. Mm. And so when people complain about cultural Marxism, I mean, it seems like what they're complaining about 
is this faux wokeism that's like manufactured by the establishment to distract us from the collapse of the establishment. Right? That's a great point. Yeah, that's really where I, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I, I, that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, it's the people who don't do any work but are but are collecting all of the wealth. Of the, they, it happened again just like it did in the medieval period when you had people sit up in their castle collecting all of the... Um, all of the the fruits of the labor of their subjects, and it's happened again. That dynamic system has given way, uh, it is, and as technology is the specific medium by which this happens, has given way to a system where workers are are less and less relevant with each passing year, with each new technological advancement. And finally, you get to a point where people own these colossal means of production, but the but the colossal means of production don't really require much in the way of workers. That shifts the economic balance of power, and you end up with a bizarre situation like the one we're in now. Um, so anyway, yeah, those are interesting points. All, um, oh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's. Uh, I have this experience. It's so great to have an actual pod where I can actually um, say the thing or uh, like. So often I've listened to podcasts and you just are frustrated by the fact that no one is saying the obvious thing, like maybe about the land grab. Well, um, it seems like this knot needs to be untangled about Marxism because, yeah, the bit about cult- cultural Marxism is such a canard, right? Yeah. It seems like a real problem. And so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe our claim to fame can be like unthreading this idea. And I mean, it should be, I guess, a bigger talking point, right? That like Marx like supported capitalism to bring about change. Mm. And I, I just, it's just like, it seems like obvious in light of the past couple election cycles here in the good old US of A that the system obviously is collapsing under its own weight. And it seems obvious, yeah, this, this cultural Marxism or whatever you want to call it is clearly a byproduct of the establishment collapsing rather than, you know, uh, the the ill in somehow acknowledging what Marx had to say in the first place. Yeah. 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 Let's not, it's, it's like, um, it's like a rodeo clown. The rodeo clown is dancing and waving his arms and trying to distract us, the bull from keeping our eye on the prize. I think that, that, that the, the fastball we got to be keeping our eye on is the distinction between earned and unearned income. When you think about things like rent and, um, interest, um, things like that, uh, or and monopoly rent. Those, those really are the parasites that are just sucking up, sucking our economy dry, uh, like a like a like a dead whale carcass in the ocean. And um, we have to start. We have to start seeing seeing those distinctions, just like the early capitalists did, so we can free ourselves from the parasite and move on to a more glorious future. And so we can reproduce our society 10 years, 20 years, 50 years down the line. We don't end up in the collapse situation prophesied by Mr. Karl Marx. Yeah. Well, hey, and speaking of the distinction between earned and unearned income, the news out of Argentina this week is pretty entertaining. We had the election of Mr. Javier Malay, who um, he seems, he does seem kind of unhinged, but he also seems hilarious, which I totally respect. I like the way that he presents himself, um, but I worry that his economic ideas are just going to, even if he could get them passed, they're just going to destroy, dig Argentina. Argentina is one of these countries that has like defaulted many times to the International Monetary Fund, and every time they default, they have to get a new loan, and every time they get a new loan, the IMF demands that they sell off more of their infrastructure to uh, private investors, private foreign investors, and that they cut their social spending uh, in order to raise them, in order to and then jack up taxes, in order to raise the money they need to pay off the loans, and it's just a terrible. I just don't see how. Um, well, 
Is it, is his plan to like try to pull in Italy and give an fu to the IMF? The Greeks, the Greeks. Oh yeah, that's the I mean. exact opposite plan, right? <laughs> his plan is to adopt the U.S. dollar and slash government spending, cut out all the various ministries that comprise the Argentine government, and jack up taxes so that he can raise the wealth needed to pay off these loans. Whereas Varoufakis and the Syriza Party of Greece in two thousand like. 9, 10, 11, their plan was to say, we're not paying back these loans. We've already paid back many times the principal, um, and we're not selling off our public infrastructure, um, and we're not slashing government services, thereby exacerbating unemployment. You know, it's like a they tried to pull out of their death spiral, and they couldn't pull it off. Um, I think uh, I'll have to look in. Economist Michael Hudson once told a story about a then-Vice President Joe Biden being dispatched uh, to make to make it clear to the Greeks that they did not have the option to default on their loans and they were going to pay no matter what. And that's something we'd have to you know, look, look into for, for ourselves versus taking someone else's word for it. But, um, but it certainly did not work. Um, so yeah, it seems like this whole radical anarcho-capitalist ideal is just exactly the opposite um, of putting up your middle finger to the IMF and uh, just embracing the death spiral. Well, it doesn't seem like it would be a popular idea. I guess I'll have to investigate him further. Like, I don't know how we sold this to the Argentinians. Like, I would, I mean, obviously, this is, I mean, getting out of debt seems like a good long-term strategy, but uh, it seems like uh, they're, usually, like, short-term suffering for long-term gain is not a popular notion. I think it was 2018, um, the last, uh, the last, president um did the same thing uh did a similar he didn't uh, abolish the uh, the central bank of argentina but he did accept a, a whole crazy raft of austerity measures and fired a bunch of government workers and the situation there has been miserable um the price of he um like there's a lot of government run utilities like gas and water and the price of those things have shot up like 10 times just in the past couple of years so it's easy to see how a crank like him got elected because it's just pure chaos and dysfunction down there um, but the, the the libertarian sort of concept that we're just going to shrink the government, I don't think it's going to ultimately be – what you want to do is invest in things that eventually make you more, more money and that's how you pay off the loans um, versus um, – versus uh, imposing austerity and uh, just just killing jobs and driving up the prices for everyone and increasing misery. Um, but we'll see how it all plays out down there. Um, it's, it'll be interesting. Um, I didn't pay too much attention to Argentine history before this week, um, so I'll have to definitely uh, look more into it as the weeks wear on. Well, I mean, if he can live up, you know, to his mustache, uh, you know, that, that'll be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the man is clearly crazy looking, but I do love the way that he just like, um, there's a famous video of him just, he has a whole, uh, he has like a whiteboard with stickers on it uh, that shows the geometry of the Argentine government and he's pulling off stickers and just being like, yep, this, this ministry's cut, this ministry's cut. I think that is, that is hilarious. I mean, it's just, uh, it's nice to see his, the, his disrespect <laughs> um, for the status quo anyway. We could stand some of that here stateside. Well, I don't know what you're supposed to do if you're a, you know, a South American country like under the thumb of the IMF. Uh, so hopefully he works something out down there. Yeah, this program's been tried um, in Chile and other, and uh, it's like it never it never works out well because you end up um, privatizing the for, for profit the sections of your economy that should be run on a on a sort of communal good for all basis. And yeah, I don't know, we'll see. Um, it's sure it's 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 really entertaining. It feels like uh, just another 
example of the pot boiling more and more as the weeks wear on here in 2023. All right. Well, uh, so what, what was the other thing we wanted to talk about? Uh, alchemy? Yeah, well, so um, there is like, um, when you're in the depths of a, this ties back into the very, the initial conversation we had here um, about going booze and then feeling the terrible regret the next morning. Um, it's kind of, it's the idea that's um, expressed by the words, um, it's always darkest before the dawn. You've heard this one before. Um, it's it, the the history here is um, it, one that you're going to be familiar with, and so is everyone. Um, there's this idea of Homer's Odyssey that you might recall. Um, we did you ever have to read Homer's Odyssey when we were in school? Uh, I did at least uh, chunks of it. Yeah, they didn't have us read the whole thing. We just looked. We just went through it in chunks. Um, and so um, that was the the foundational myth of the of Greek culture. And um, the, the Aeneid by Virgil, the Roman poet, is less well-known, but the idea here is obviously um, the Odyssey is about the return from the Trojan War, um, trying to get back home to Ithaca, the, the heroes Odysseus. And uh, so basically this guy, when, when Rome arose and conquered Greek culture, uh, conquered the Greek peninsula and then um, added Greek culture to its, sort of, its uh, mythical body, this Roman poet named Virgil created a poem called the Aeneid about this guy Aeneas, who was a character who was at the Trojan War, and he supposedly uh, left Troy, left the ruins of Troy. He was a Trojan prince, and then he was integral in founding Rome. So it, it's this story, again, about a journey where it ties in Rome with this Greek mythology. And then then you have, if now you fast forward to the Renaissance, and you have um, the... Divine Comedy with Dante, and of course, who is Dante's guide through hell, and then through purgatory, and then finally through heaven. It's the same. This Roman poet Virgil is the is the character in Dante's Inferno. So you have like the, the initial story of this journey, and then you have other huge pieces of literature that involve a journey and uh, that pile on top of it and just kind of keep time with the great uh, rises and falls of Western civilization over the millennia. Um, and so that idea has, a, has a, a magical counterpart called the alchemical journey where you have to go, you have to descend into the negredo or the abyss in order to, in, in order to arise and um, complete something called the magnum opus of the great work. But um, the part that interests us is this idea that you really have to go through hell in order to make it to heaven, right? Um, do you find that, like, um, do you find in your life, Brian, that you put things off to the last moment? <laughs> do you have a, are you a terrible procrastinator like me? Uh, well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> See, I feel like that's really what we're talking about here. There's like an individual version of this and a cultural version of this um, that we, we just outlined some fairly dark goings on in modern history that I think are, a sign of us descending into the abyss like Dante did or, or any number of people before him. Um, like I, if the idea, he, if the notion is that ideas um, compete with each other, like animals, like you have like a, you have a specific genetic makeup and these specific genetic makeups compete each other in the guise of species compete with each other in the guise of species. And then you, and then Darwinian competition weeds out the species that are most functional or the genetic codes that are most functional. You can say the same thing is true of ideas, and that's why this idea of the al alchemical journey journey keeps popping up over and over again. 
Um, and I wonder, he, he, this, this is what's on my mind lately. I wonder if there's not an energy conservation aspect to this. Like, is it part of our nature? Do we have it, like, in the same way that Darwinian evolution amongst genetic codes gives rise to specific structures like lungs or kidneys or brain or arms or eyes? The idea here, and this is Platonism 101, right? The idea here is that the journey through the, the, the journey through history sees ideas competing each, against each other in just the same way. And those and the ideas that are most functional end up being the ones that get repeated and passed down and reproduced over and over again. And I'm wondering if it isn't like, um, you know how the, the like cheetahs, they lie around all day until, but they have one burst of energy when it comes time to track down their prey. Is that us? Do we, is there a, is there a calorie conservation part of this where we don't, we don't raise a finger until things get bad and that's just a mental structure we all have and that's built into us to some way, to some degree or another, um, that's just that's what's been rattling around my brain recently. I have a, a substat coming out about that soon. Um, it was interesting to arrive in Florence and um, one of the Medici's many palaces there in Florence, and I think we've talked about in this pod before, is the Palazzo Pitti. And out behind the that palazzo is this hedge maze that is arranged according to this idea of the alchemical journey. You can either the the, the starting point and the ending points are both statues of the goddess Demeter, who appears in the Odyssey. Um, Oh, excuse me, who appears in the hymn to Demeter, which is um, supposedly ascribed to Homer, the same man who wrote the Odyssey. And um, the Medicis placed a statue of Demeter as the start and at the end of the hedge maze, but you can see the end from the start, and you can walk straight there. But their point was they wanted to find out if the people who were visiting their palace were fluent in this notion of the alchemical journey and would understand what they were looking at, that you could take this huge, this big, long, circuitous route through the hedge maze, or you could go straight from start to finish with no problem. Um, but they, but if people could recognize that, then they would recognize that they were speaking to somebody who was trustworthy or who understood the language of magic or who understood the heretical ideas that the Catholic church at that time had put a ban on. Um, so all that is, uh, all that is very interesting. Um, and I wonder if it's not a part of the archetypical structure of all of our minds, um, this alchemical journey. Well, I mean, I think homeostasis is what we sort of strive for. And then, um, you know, we'll have large periods of change. Um, I think it's certainly, obviously, it's better if you cannot procrastinate until the last minute. And the people who are able to do so seem happier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, they, and then they can also achieve excellence, right? Isn't the path to excellence um, repudiation of procrastination? Aren't they like two op- two sides of the two opposite poles? Um, is that how you perceive it? Yeah, so is walking the hedge mage like a repudiation of procrastination? Uh, well, that's what I'm suggesting. That's the layer, the spin I'm putting on it. It's a, uh, it's cert- like when you ha- like everyone knows the story of the the son of the rich, you know, robber baron who just is a total screw up and can't re- be because there's value in the journey, right? That's the the that's it. it um, the the book, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. The the plot is exactly this. Uh, the 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 thing of value is buried in the front yard where the uh, the main character departs from the very beginning of the book and he doesn't he has to go on this big long journey only to realize it was, the whole thing was right back at his right back at the start that he was looking for. But what you're looking for is not really the thing. What you're looking for is the journey. There's value in the journey. Um 
So yeah, uh, interesting stuff. Anyway, uh, it really these the 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 magical ideas really have a much bigger impact on history than we realized. We live in a strange the um, the the Catholic Church, the Roman Church, in this destruction of all pagan ideas um, at the time that the uh, Catholic that Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire. It's like this weird corner in time that we can't see back around. It looks like the ideas of Christianity just arose suddenly uh, because we can't see what came before. Um, and uh, well, that's what the Renaissance really was. It was a uh, a revisiting of the ideas that came before Christianity, a rediscovery of the ideas that came before Christianity, um, and uh, and that's and it's characterized by this Italian Renaissance, which is really excellence, you know, um, in any number of arts um, that's undeniable. You can look at, you can just look at these works of art and go, that is it, whether it's architecture or painting or sculpture, you can just look at, or uh, music, you know, you can look at it and be like, this is undeniably excellent. And uh, maybe the idea of the alchemical journey is some of the gas that fueled the flame of the Italian Renaissance. If, if it is the, if, if this connection between being lazy and procrastinating in the alchemical journey that I'm trying to make is a, is a valid one. So, that's what my that's where my mind has been, especially since um, Saturday morning when I woke up with a truly trenchant hangover. Well, so there is this thing where, like, you know, human DNA and like monkey DNA are like what ninety five percent similar or something like that. Um, but, but well, I guess it's it comes down to the question of nature versus nurture. But like your environment, though, like shapes like the how your genes express themselves. So. I mean, obviously, like, in a healthy environment, uh, you know, uh, well, you, you get, like, a better-looking human being, I suppose. Uh, but also, like, you know, as, as like, wolves were, like, tamed into dogs or whatever, I mean, they just get, like, softer-looking features and they look less aggressive. And so I don't know if it relates to if, like, ideas are somehow the same way where they they have a certain coding but i don't know they like adapt to their environment somehow mm. like so maybe there's like some kind of nature versus nurture that applies to like you know memes as well and how they express themselves mm. and like what we're capable of people and then well maybe like the same idea like just maybe in like times of dramatic change or whatever I don't, I don't know, like, the ideas express themselves differently somehow. Mm. Well, I mean, I think you're exactly right. There's definitely an aspect of nature versus nurture here. How do we know? It's because all these all these guys uh, at the, in the same time in the 15th century had the same idea, had the ideas about the Italian Renaissance in the same moment. You know, they, they were feeding off of each other, feeding off their environment. Um, it's definitely, like, you definitely need to have all, if you're, if you're just um, in a pure survival situation, you're not going to be able to achieve the transcendent glory of you know Saint Peter's Basilica, for example, in the Vatican City, um, it, it they really there there is like an there is an element of you need to have in order to to in order to properly embark on the archetypical alchemical journey, you have to have a few basic ingredients in place, and then and then, and then when you have um, when you have conditions that are really good, you can achieve unbelievable heights of mastery or of beauty or of showing each other the inside showing people the inside of your head and other people showing showing you the inside of their head you can achieve new height you can achieve much higher heights heights of excellence if you have the right context or the right um the the right pieces in place i suppose well it seems like we're on a you know a decline <laughs> and so um uh yeah maybe if we're not on a societal decline i mean i guess we we 
be things to be different or maybe the decline will create the change like get the circumstances that's it yes for, for the change and coding of the ideas i guess is set up for that maybe and uh so I mean, I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, uh, that, that's really that's really the 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 great thing about the alchemical journey. It, it, as we sail further into chaos, it's easy to be alarmed and uh, and upset, and there could be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth. Um, but I but I do think that things have to get. It's maybe I think it's baked into who we are as humans that things have to get really bad so that they can get better. So you have to have a little bit of faith to the dark night of the soul is ultimately the lesson of the alchemical journey and to not freak out or to not despair um, even as things get crazier and crazier. Um, and so, uh, yeah, if you're one of those people like me who's like never going to be able to afford a house, then, uh, you know, you can just like try to have some faith in the alchemical journey and not freak out uh, not freak out too much is is the um, the positive spin I'm putting on these uh, the deplorable world events that we mentioned at the top of the pod, trying to make it you know seem like maybe there's a silver lining to the to the intensifying dark cloud by making reference to this ancient idea of the alchemical journey. Right, and maybe it'll it'll pass like a trenchant hangover. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, yes, that's exactly. I couldn't have said it better. Yeah, that's very funny. <laughs> yes, yeah, this too will pass. That's what you got to remember when you're when your legs are cycling under the sheets and you got the sweats on. You're like, why, why? Um, yeah. Well, I guess you pretty much always want to like stick to your fundamentals. Yeah. And, uh, not do anything crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Try to have discipline, uh, versus, um, be, be versus, you know, a lack of virtue, which is what was on prominent display on Friday night. There can be no question about that. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's, uh, about wraps it up then. Yeah. Eh? yeah. That'll do it for another exciting edition of system failure podcast. Um, we do want to invite people to send us an email, um, at not at substack.com. That's K N O P P at substack.com. And if you want to read about the alchemical journey and a great many other stimulating ideas, why head on over to nop.substack.com where you can find the back catalog of this podcast in addition to my Substack essays. Um, So we hope to see you online, folks. All right. All right.